be really informed, you need to know what's behind the national news stories and what's going on in your neighborhood. Consider This, a new podcast from NPR and WNYC, helps you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story from 1986 called The Colonel Says I Love You by Sergei Dovlatov. A divorce would be a mistake. We would like to see your family reunited, the colonel said, smiling broadly. After all, you love them, don't you? The Colonel Says I Love You was chosen by David Bismoskis, the author of Natasha and Other Stories. His stories have also appeared in The New Yorker. He joins me from the studios of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in Toronto, where he lives. Hi, David. Hi. So Sergei Dovlatov emigrated to the U.S. from Russia in 1979 when he was 38, and he lived here until he died in 1990 when he was only 48. Yeah. And in the 80s, he published translations of 10 of his stories in the magazine. But part of your reason for choosing him, I think, was that his work has since then been, um, to a great extent, forgotten. Why do you think that is? I have no idea. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, it's hard to explain these sorts of things, but I, I think he's such a wonderful writer and uh, such a great humorist, so I really don't know. Do you know if he's well-known in Russia, or is he sort of overlooked there as well? Well, I think that's the irony. I mean, he wasn't, until the fall of the Soviet Union, from what I understand, he really wasn't published at all in Russia. Mm-hmm. And after the fall, he became incredibly popular. So I think he probably still has a following in Russia. And when I talk to you know, Russians and former Soviet people, his name uh, is very recognized. Mm -hmm. How did you first start reading him? A book was given to me as a gift, um, and I'd never heard of him either. And uh, the book is the collection Hours, from which uh, this story is taken. Mm -hmm. And uh, I read it all in one go, and I couldn't believe it. I mean, there's so much uh, about this writer that, that really spoke to me. What was it that appealed to you personally? There are a number of things. First of all, he has this really great mordant style. He sees the the absurdity of Soviet life, and he doesn't rise above it. I mean, he kind of implicates himself in it, but he manages to see these, you know, really absurd things, and he relates them in a very clear, fast-paced prose that at the same time has a lot of emotion to it. So all of these things really did appeal to me. Some of what he writes about this, this sort of the absurdities of, of life in the Soviet Union, was that familiar to you from your own family background? Oh, yeah. These are things that I saw even in the emigre community here in North America. Mm-hmm. But I was a boy when I came, and uh, reading him was uh, kind of a crash course in some of the things that, that I hadn't even known. Well, this is likely going to be the first time that uh, most listeners have heard anything by Sergei Dovlatov. So is there anything else you think they need to know before they listen? I'm not sure. I mean, I think the story really speaks for itself. Um, I guess the other thing is, a lot of what he writes about is about Sergei Dovlatov. It's, uh, it seems like it's about his own life. I, I wonder what he'd be called today. Is this fiction? Is this mm-hmm. creative nonfiction? Is this memoir? Any of these things. But uh, in that sense, he was kind of unique. I think that's definitely something we'll, we'll want to talk about after we hear the story. So now here's David Bismoskis reading The Colonel Says I Love You by Sergei Dovlatov. Our world is absurd, I said to my wife, and a man's enemies are the people in his own house. My wife takes offense, though I say this as a joke. She comes back with, I'll tell you who your enemies are, cheap port and bleached blondes. Which means, I say, that I am a true Christian, for Christ taught us to love our enemies. Such conversations have been going on for twenty years, give or take a few weeks. 
I emigrated to America dreaming of divorce. The sole ground for divorce was my wife's extreme imperturbability. Her serenity had no limits. It is remarkable how two opposite qualities, serenity and contrariness, can coexist in one person. We met in 1963. This is how it happened. I had a room in a communal apartment, but a room with its own entrance. The window faced the garbage dump. My friends got together practically every evening at my place. Once, I woke up in the middle of the night, saw the dirty dishes on the table, and an overturned chair, remembered the evening that had just been with a stab. Some of us had gone out to buy more vodka three times. Someone else had actually said, Let's go get something to eat at Yeliseev's. It's three blocks there, and about the same distance back. I started thinking about what breakfast would be like in a messy room. Suddenly, I sensed that I was not alone. Someone was sleeping on the couch between the refrigerator and the record player. There were rustlings and sighs. I asked, who's there? Suppose it's Lena, a calm female voice answered unexpectedly. I got to thinking, you don't hear the name Lena so very often. In my circle of friends, Tamara's and Larissa's predominated. I asked, what's your status, Lena? To put it more simply, who is your socius quanon? There was a pause. Then the calm female voice said, Gervich forgot me. Gervich was someone I knew through buying books on the black market. He was arrested two years later. What do you mean, forgot? Gervich got drunk and took a taxi home. I began to remember something. You were wearing a brown dress? Basically. Green, actually. Gervich tore it. But I slept in somebody's work shirt. That's my old army work shirt. A relic, so to speak. When you leave, please take it off. There's some kind of metal here in front. That, I said, is a sports pin. So sharp, it kept me up all night. Who could blame it, I said. Finally, I remembered who she was. Slim, pale, with Mongolian eyes. By this time, it was getting light. Look the other way, Liana said. I covered my face with the newspaper. Instantly, the acoustics changed. The young lady proceeded to walk to the door, to judge by the sound in my velveteen slippers. I crawled out from under the blanket. The day had begun in a very strange way. Then some awkward maneuvering in the hall, a towel around my not-so-bony ribcage, the army shirt that didn't quite reach her knees. We got past each other with some difficulty. I headed for the shower. After a shower, a relative degree of lucidity always enters my life. I came out after three minutes to find the table set with coffee, cookies, jam. Also fish in aspic, for some reason. By this time, Lena had put on her dress, the classic ripped by the collar. The mark of Fima Gurevich's unbridled sensuality became her well. Truly, I said, it is green. We had breakfast, making small talk. It was all amiable, easy, even pleasant, like a kind of corrective to the general craziness of the situation. Lena got her things together, put on her shoes, and said, I'm off. Thank you for a most pleasant morning. Suddenly I heard her say, I'll be here around six. Good, I said. I thought of the time I was leaving a bathhouse with a friend when a policeman stopped us. We both got very tense and asked, What's going on? And he said, You wouldn't happen to remember when Akhmatova's Rosary was published. My friend said, 1914, Hyperborean Press, St. Petersburg. The policeman said, Thank you, you can go. Where? we asked. Wherever you wish, he answered, you are free. 
At the time I'd been struck by the mixture of the everyday and the absurd, and now I had a similar impression from Yena's, I'll be here around six. And I had an appointment at 5.30. To make matters worse, it wasn't with a woman, but with Brodsky. After that, there was supposed to be a dinner celebrating someone's successful thesis defense. I called to cancel the appointment, the dinner I ignored. I rushed home from work in a taxi. I found myself thinking, I should have ordered another set of keys. I waited. She arrived close to six. She opened a string shopping bag and unpacked cans of food, eggs, and hake. You do whatever you have to do, she said, and I'll get all this ready. Suddenly I had a wild thought. Maybe she's got me mixed up with somebody else, with some dear and close person. Maybe the world has really gone mad. We ate supper, and I sat down to work. Yenna washed the dishes and turned on the television. My television had not worked in two years, and now it suddenly started working, just like new. I began to notice a few small changes. Some foreign jars had appeared above the sink. Something suede hung in my closet. A pair of short beige boots stood by the refrigerator. Even the scent of the air in the apartment was different. It grew late. Yenna asked, Would you like tea or coffee? Tea. We drank tea with some kind of gingerbread cookies. I hadn't eaten gingerbread for about thirty years. Suddenly I noticed that it was one in the morning. Time to go to sleep, it would seem. Yenna said, Go sit in the kitchen for a moment. I sat there, smoked, read last Tuesday's paper. When I went into the other room, she was asleep, on the very same couch, only instead of the army shirt, I saw something pink. I lay down on my bed and listened. Not a sound. Not even the smallest, flirtatious rustle in her sleep. I waited for about ten minutes and also fell asleep. In the morning, everything went just as before. The slight awkwardness, a shower, coffee with milk. This time, she said, I'll be delayed. I'll be here after eleven, so don't worry. I went off to the editorial office, from there to the Union of Soviet Journalists Bar. I met a Swedish woman who invited me to her hotel. She kept saying, Cossack, pour me some more of that Russian vodka. My friends were planning to go to an underground concert to hear a certain avant-garde musician, and a highly unusual one, you might say. He played the cello lying down. In a word, temptations by the carload. But I hurried home. I was late getting back to my madhouse. When she arrived that evening, I said, Elena, let's have a talk. It seems to me we have to get some things out in the open. Something strange is going on. I have to ask a few ticklish questions. Do you mind if I ask them straight out? Go on, she said, and her face was as untroubled as a dam. I asked, You have no place to live, right? The young lady got slightly offended. More precisely, she showed some surprise. Why do you say that? I have an apartment on Dachny Prospect. Why do you ask? Well, no reason, really, it seemed to me, I thought. Then just one more question, completely between friends, a thousand times pardon. Are you, uh, perhaps attracted to me? There was a pause. I felt myself blushing. Finally, she said, I don't make claims on you. That was how she put it. Claims, she says, I don't make. Then a pause that was even more tense than before, for me. She was full of serenity, the look in her eyes as cold and firm as the corner of a suitcase. Here I got to thinking. Perhaps her serenity put her above making sexual distinctions, above feeling any biological pull toward a man, even above the idea of a permanent place of residence. And now, one last question. Oh, only don't get mad, and if I'm wrong, just forget I ever said this. To make it short, there's just one more possibility. 
You wouldn't by any chance be employed by the KGB. Anything is possible, I thought. I was, after all, somewhat known in thought and behavior unrestrained. I drank rather a lot, shut my mouth off. My name had been mentioned on Russian broadcasts from West German radio. Maybe they thought I was a budding dissident and had assigned this unbelievable woman to me. Now I thought she's really got to start yelling. If I'm wrong, she'll raise the roof. And if I'm right, she'll raise it even more. I heard her say, no, I work in a beauty parlor. And then, if you don't have any more questions, let's have some tea. That was how everything began. During the day, I would run around looking for hack work to earn money. I'd return home upset, humiliated, and bad-tempered. Yena would ask, do you want tea or coffee? We hardly talked. There were only brief, business-like exchanges of information. She said things like, someone named Beskin called, or, where's the laundry soap around here? My literary affairs did not interest her, and I didn't ask her questions either. Our madness took everyday, commonplace forms. My routine changed somewhat. Women friends called less and less often. Well, why call if a calm female voice answers the phone? We remained absolutely unknown to each other. Vienna was unbelievably silent and serene. Hers was not the tense silence of a spoiled loudmouth, and not the menacing silence of an anti-tank mine, but the silent serenity of a tree root listening absently to the rustle of foliage. A week went by. Saturday morning, I couldn't stand it anymore. I said, no, shouted, Lena, listen to me. Let me be completely frank. We are living like a married couple, but without the main element of married life. We keep house, you do the laundry. Please, tell me, what does this all mean? I'm losing my mind. Lena looked at me with calm, friendly eyes. Am I in your way? Do you want me to leave? I don't know what I want. I want to understand. Love, I understand. Lust, I understand. I understand everything but this normalized lunacy. If you were a KGB agent, then everything would be normal. I would even be pleased. There would at least be some kind of logic. But this way... Yena was silent, then said, If you want me to go, just say so. And then, lowering her narrow, Mongolian eyes a little, If you need that, it's all right. What do you mean by that? Her eyelashes lowered even more. Her voice sounded even calmer. In the sense of physical intimacy. No, no, I said, what for? Could I really dare, I thought, destroy this serenity in so gross a way? About two more weeks passed, and then what saved me was vodka. I got drunk at the office party of a progressive publishing house. Made it home around one in the morning, then, well, how shall I put it best? I forgot myself. Encroached. Took the wrong road, just like the future jailbird, Gervich. It was not love, and it was certainly not a momentary weakness. It was an attempt to ward off chaos. The stone I threw sank without a ripple to the bottom of the ocean. We didn't even start addressing each other in the familiar form. A year later, a daughter was born to us, and we named her Katya. That was how we got to know each other. As a husband, I was a dubious catch. For years, I had no steady work. I had the tarnished appearance of a disqualified matador. My stories were not being published. I grew more and more bad-tempered and less and less careful. In the summer of 1970, my first manuscripts found their way to the West. I began to have foreign acquaintances. They sat in our room till late at night and gladly drank vodka while they snacked on liver sausage. My communal neighbor, Tikhomorov, used to mutter in a threatening way, the people you know, real Sinyavsky Daniel types, troublemakers. 
In the fall of that year, my name was again mentioned on some Western radio stations. My stories did not interest Diana. In general, she took no interest in accomplishments as such. Her limited outlook seemed a part of her limitless tranquility. In this way, my life came under the rule of two opposing elements. An ocean of nonconformism rose to the left. To the right stretched the untroubled calm of bourgeois well-being, and I stumbled along in between. Meanwhile, Lena had left her job in the beauty parlor and had been hired as a proofreader by Soviet writer, a publishing house. This surprised me. I didn't know she was so literate, just as I didn't know a lot of other things, and still don't to this day. A year later, she entered into conflict with the authorities. Her publishing house had issued a limited edition of Anna Akhmatova's poetry. A very small number of copies were set aside for the staff, but some people were entirely passed over, and included among them was my wife. She went to see the director of the publishing house, Kondrashev, and stated her claims. In answer, Kondrashev said, You do not quite grasp the complexity of the political context. The largest part of the edition has to be sent abroad. We are obliged to throttle the voice of bourgeois propaganda. Throttle mine, Lena told him. From then on, a partial, fellow dissident understanding formed between us. The years went by. Our daughter was growing up. She used to point at my shortwave radio and say, I put your BBC on the windowsill. We had little money. We quarreled often. I would blow up. My wife would be silent. Silence is an enormous power. It ought to be banned by law, like biological warfare. I was always complaining about not having any future as a writer. Lena would say, write 2,000 stories. I have to publish one of them. I would think, what's she talking about? What's the use of getting one story published? And even I got offended, though for no reason. We had different senses of scale. I put the emphasis on the unit, Lena on the mass. And she was right. You can only conquer with quantity. All of world history bears this out. I knew so little about my wife that I was constantly being surprised. Anything that could ruffle her serenity took me by surprise. Once, she burst into tears when someone from the House Management Committee said something insulting. To be honest, I was even pleased. It meant that her passions could be aroused, but this happened rarely. Most of the time, she was imperturbable. In the 1970s, emigration to the West began. Close friends were leaving. There were endless discussions about whether to leave or not. I kept insisting. What would there be for me to do there? It makes no sense to run from one's native home. If literature is a reprehensible activity, then our place is in prison. Lena gave no opinion. She seemed to have become even more silent. The days dragged on in endless, depressing talk at the dinner table, frequent trips to the airport to see people off, and conversations at night. I remember well the day in February when Lena came home from work and said, That's it. We're leaving. I've had it. I tried to argue. I talked about the motherland, about God, about the benefits of enduring intense social pressure, about the linguistic and cultural range available to us. I even spoke of birch trees, something for which I'll never forgive myself. But Lena was already leaving the room to make a telephone call. I blew up and went off to the Pushkin estate near Pskov for a month. When I returned, Lena handed me a stack of papers to sign for Katya and her. I said, what, already? Yes, she said, everything is settled. We have the documents in hand. I'm sure they will let us leave. It could happen within the next two weeks. I was stunned. I hadn't thought it would happen so soon. More to the point, I'd hoped Lena would talk me into leaving with them. After all, it was I who loathed the Soviet regime. Those were my stories that weren't being published. 
It was I who was just a hair's breadth away from being a dissident. From then till the day they left, I walked around in a kind of daze, mechanically did whatever had to be done, greeted guests, and saw them off. The day of departure came at last. A crowd gathered at the airport, mostly my friends and drinking cronies. We said goodbye. Yenna looked completely unperturbed. One of my relatives had given her a silver fox fur piece as a going-away present. For a long time afterward, I had dreams of grinning fox faces. My daughter was wearing big, clumsy sneakers. She looked bewildered. That was the year she wasn't pretty at all. Then they got on the airplane bus. We waited for the airplane to take off. The planes were taking off every few minutes, and it was hard to tell which one was ours. I began to miss them on the way back from the airport and started drinking straight from the bottle in the taxi home. The driver said to me, at least bend down. I said, it doesn't come out well that way. From that day on, my entire life changed. I was overcome with agitation. The only thing I thought about was emigration. I drank and thought. Yenna wrote postcards that were like coded messages. Rome is a large, beautiful city. By day it's hot. By night they play music. Katya as well. Prices are comparatively low. Her postcards were loaded with calm. My mother read them over and over again, trying to find some shred of emotion. But I knew that was useless. I'll now set down and outline the events that followed. The accusation of social parasitism and promoting dens of vice. The signed oath not to leave town while under investigation. Investigator Michelov. Some unexplained beatings at a police station a series of broadcasts on West German radio, arrest and trial on Tolmachev Street, nine days in Kalyevsky prison, unexpected release, summons to the Office of Emigration. The KGB colonel at the Office of Emigration told me, politely and amiably, you ought to emigrate, your wife has left, and you should have left long ago. Just to be contrary, I said, my wife and I are divorced. I thought when she left, our marriage was all over. A divorce would be a mistake, we would like to see your family reunited, the colonel said, smiling broadly. After all, you love them, don't you? Who's them? Your wife and daughter. Well, of course you love them. It was in this way that my love for my wife and daughter became a fact, and the person to stand witness to it turned out to be a KGB colonel. I tried to find my bearings. I could make out two real poles to the world, the known, native, suffocating here, and the obscure, half-fantastic there. Here, I had a limitless vista of a tormented life among friends and enemies. There, only wife and child, the tiny island of my wife's imperturbable calm. All my hopes were there. I don't know why I gave the colonel a hard time. Six weeks later, my mother and I were in Austria. Vienna reminded me of a section of Leningrad, the part between the Fontanka and Sadovia Street. The single serious detail of the city's landscape was the river, the river that I discovered on the third or fourth day to be the Danube. Prostitutes stood out against the grayish backdrop of the streets. They looked like the heroines of foreign film comedies. We settled in a little hotel called the Admiral. My mother read Solzhenitsyn day and night. I wrote something or other for emigrate journals and newspapers, mostly elaborating on my non-existent, dissident exploits. By that time, Lena had settled in America. Her letters were more laconic than ever. I work as a typist. Kaicha goes to school. Our neighborhood is comparatively safe. Our landlord is a nice, middle-aged American named Andrei Kovalenko. My mother and I lived in Austria till the summer. Vienna was our stepping stone between Leningrad and America. It's such a long way. 
that it probably has to be done in two hops. We finally received our American papers. The seven hours above the ocean seemed like an eternity to me. There's too little in space of any interest. The airplane was already American territory. The airline stewardesses behaved like independent people. Friends were waiting for us at Kennedy Airport, a well-known photographer named Kulikov with his wife and son. As soon as the greetings were over, they immediately began railing against life in America. Buy a Toyota, old man, Kulikov said. Or even better, a Volkswagen. American cars are crap. I asked, but where are Lena and Katya? Kulikov handed me a note. Make yourselves at home. We are at the health club. We'll be home around eight. There's food in the refrigerator. Lena. We drove to their apartment in Flushing. The surrounding, horizontal landscape reminded me of the wrong side of the Moscow railroad tracks. Skyscrapers were conspicuously absent. My mother looked out the window and said, The streets are completely empty. This isn't a street, Kulikov objected. This is a highway. What does that mean, highway? my mother asked. Main road, I answered. Yena lived on the first floor of a small brick building. Kulikov helped carry in our suitcases. Then he said, Rest up. It's already night in Europe. I'll call you tomorrow. And he left. I had not expected, of course, to be met by a delegation of American writers, but Lena, I thought, could have come to the airport. We found ourselves in an empty apartment. There were mattresses on the floor in each of the two rooms. Clothes were strewn all over the place. Mama took a look in the refrigerator and said, Cheese here is almost the same as ours. Suddenly, I felt incredible fatigue. I lay down on top of the blanket and lit a cigarette the contours of reality began to recede. Who am I, I thought, and where do I come from? What is happening to me? And how will it all turn out? This new life already struck me as too commonplace to hold any significant changes. I thought, too, how does human intimacy arise? What do people need to have in order to feel kinship? I woke up early in the morning. Outside the window, a branch was moving back and forth. There was someone beside me. I asked, Who's there? Lena answered a calm female voice, which then said, You've gotten so heavy. You have to start running each morning. I said, For all practical purposes, there's no place to run. I'd prefer to stay here. I hope that's possible. Of course, if you love us. The colonel says I love you. If you love us, then stay. We have no objection. What's love got to do with it, I said. Love is for teenagers. In our case, it's no longer a matter of love, but of fate. By the way, where's Katya? On a mat next to her grandmother. Then Lena said, look the other way. I covered my face with an American newspaper. Lena got up, put on a bathrobe and asked, would you like tea or coffee? At that moment, Katya appeared. But that's another story. That was David Bismosgus reading The Colonel Says I Love You by Sergei Dovlatov. It was translated by Anne Friedman. The story appeared in The New Yorker in 1986 and was included in his collection Hours, A Russian Family. If you've been having a hard time customizing your workout to fit your new lifestyle these days, you are not alone. This New Yorker podcast is supported by Bulldog Online Yoga, the streaming platform that makes working out both fun and convenient. Build strength, relieve stress, and get your stretch on with easy-to-use apps for your computer, phone, and smart TV. With classes that range from 10 to 60 minutes, Bulldog sets all online yoga classes to custom Spotify playlists that'll have you smiling while you sweat it out. 
Head over to BulldogOnline.com today and get 30 days free. That's BulldogOnline.com to stream your first 30 days completely free. The New Yorker Festival is back, and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup, and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes. Chris Rock is joining us, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin, too, and a performance in conversation with Fiona Apple. There's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Eric Holder, and many more. You can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com slash festival. Again, that's newyorker.com slash festival. See you there. So, David, as you mentioned before, most of um, Dovlatov's stories seem to be at least based on his real life. Um, he uses the first person. He calls his narrator Sergei Dovlatov. Do you know how true to life they are? Is I there don't. any way that we can know? Um, you could probably call his wife. <laughs> She's still alive. <laughs> She's still alive. Uh, or his kids. Well, there's a story that was published in The New Yorker three years after this one called The Photo Album. And in that one, he tells quite a different version of how he met his wife. Yeah. And instead of her sort of being left behind at a party, she's going door to door trying to get people to vote in an election. I noticed in that story that he says he keeps retelling the story and every time he gets a bit closer to the truth. And the question that raises, is any version actually entirely true? And does it really matter? Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's always the question. Does it really matter? Of course, it doesn't matter because the only thing that matters is the story that you have in front of you and if it affects you. Mm-hmm. I think for some reason... You know, we have our curiosity and readers have curiosity. And even about things that are overtly fictional, they'll still ask if it's true. It's actually a a kind of style of writing that seems pretty popular lately. We have, for instance, Jonathan Safran Foer writing a book about a character called Jonathan Safran Foer or Alexander Hemon, who uses his own name in, in some of his stories, or even Philip Roth, who did it years ago. What do you think is the attraction of writing in that way? I think part of the attraction is uh, is actually playing with the uh, preconceptions of the audience. I think maybe it, it's a deliberate thing on his part, if that's one angle. And the other is taking the stuff of your own life, uh, of your own history, and trying to mine it for material and trying to find the emotional core of it. Mm-hmm. In the story, there's this sort of odd kind of cross-hatching of effect. There's what he's writing and then what you feel from the writing. And, and you know, he claims he's he's dreaming of divorce. He wants to, you know, get rid of this wife who's, whom he can't understand. And at the same time, there's this sort of overwhelming affection for Liana that, that just floods the story. At least I sense it there. Yeah. He has kind of this tough guy persona uh, in a lot of his writing. And yet you can tell that there's uh, that he's also a very deeply felt emotional guy. I think he's fascinated by his wife. I think he loves the fact that she is the way she is. Maybe if she was otherwise, they wouldn't be together. Well, why do you think she is suddenly so eager to emigrate? He's the one who is sort of suffering and is being censored and, and having his stories repressed. What do, you, what do you think her motive is in emigrating? I think the way that the two of them are presented, she's a pragmatist and he's kind of a romantic. And uh, he gets off in his own head and, and thinks these... Uh, somewhat abstruse thoughts about art and literature, and she just sees things as they are. And I guess she reached the point, I don't know, whatever happened in her life when she just had enough of the Soviet system, uh, looked quite pragmatically at what her options were and decided it's better to leave than to stay. 
Do you think it's in any way an attempt on her part to force him to acknowledge his feelings for her? <laughs> it's funny that it never occurred to me. Um, There's that moment at the end where she, you know you could tells him you could stay if you if you love us. So the the idea would be that she had always wanted him to to come across more. Possibly, um, possibly. I, it's very hard to tell. <laughs> and yet, and yet, she doesn't come across either. No. So that's part of what's great about the story. They're such a, a kind of enigmatic characters, particularly her. Well, I think of her as a type of Russian woman. I don't know if you could tell the same story about an American woman quite like her. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something kind of flinty and, and tough about her. Um, and at the same time, there's this great line. She was full of serenity, the look in her eye as cold and firm as the corner of a suitcase. Yeah, that's great. You know, like, I've never heard that before, and it's, <laughs> and it's so perfect. Um, and, you know, the, the other moment where he talks about her listening like a, like a tree root, the uh, silent serenity of a tree root, listening absently to the rustle of foliage. Mm-hmm. Do you think of him as a political writer or a comic writer? You know, for any writer, any serious writer, by serious I mean like to be engaged with what's going on in the world. If you're in the Soviet Union, you can't avoid the political. But I don't think he takes it seriously. I think primarily he's a humorist when I think of him. And uh, there's a little clip now uh, that I found on the Internet the only video clip I found of him where he speaks uh, about the difference between being a storyteller and a writer and how he defines himself. And he says that he defines himself as a storyteller, uh, and not a writer, a pisaiti. And I think, you know, if you read his stories, you really get that because often they start, you know, he uses devices like, this is how it happened. And he just relates a story. And when he gets to a certain point, he'll give you like a little precy. Of, of certain events, as he does in this story about, you know, after the wife leaves and there's, you know, he gets beaten up in prison, um, you know, there's a whole catalog of events, and then he moves on. And oftentimes the stories end the way this one does when, you know, the daughter shows up, but that's another story. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit like uh, Isaac Singer, actually, in that way. And I wonder if it isn't because I think Singer was also writing for the foreword and uh, Davlatov was writing for uh, Russian press, um, Russian newspapers. And you find people like that even today, um, where they write these, they're, they're basically humorists, and they write stories kind of about their own experience. And it's, it's kind of serialized. You, you know, people really uh, are very devoted to these particular writers, and they, every week they, they get the uh, free Russian uh, newspaper, and they look for, you know, in this case it would be like somebody like Devlatov. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this idea that, you know, it's just about the story, what happened. Mm-hmm. Brodsky, Joseph Brodsky, um pointed out something sort of interesting about him, that he's always, quote, the individual who won't let himself be cast in the role of a victim, who's not obsessed with what makes him different. But he never sort of comes across as a martyr, as someone who had to escape an oppressive regime. He just comes across as a funny guy somehow. Yeah, I think that's the way a lot of people lived in the Soviet Union. I mean, for all the repression and everything, people had a good time Mm -hmm. um, because it wasn't uh, the Stalinist era. So uh, you could still say some things and, and behave irresponsibly and not end up in the gulag. You were just kind of shiftless. And uh, there were opportunities for you as a shiftless person to have some fun. And he did. <laughs> the question before was, why isn't he read today? And I think he is like, so current. If uh, we're going to look at you know, the sorts of things that are popular now, like the memoir section, I don't know if that existed in bookstores when uh, Devlatov was writing. 
But this idea of a memoirist or a creative nonfiction person, my God, he would be like uh, on the bestseller <laughs> list today. Back then, you had to call it fiction. There was no such category. That's right. Yeah. It was uh, so he had to pretend he was something he wasn't. But now he'd be like a star. He'd be uh, on book tour. He'd be like the Russian uh, David Sedaris. <laughs> well, thank you, David. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure. David Bismoskis' first book is called Natasha and Other Stories, which is out in paperback from Picador. His new movie, Victoria Day, was recently released in Canada. Subscribers can read all ten stories that Sergei Dovlatov published in The New Yorker online for free at newyorker.com. And everyone can download previous fiction podcasts from our website or from the iTunes store. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.